Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Upstart.com. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to Upstart.com slash Mission Log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 398, Far Beyond the Stars. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine the words of What Lies Ahead by looking at an episode of Star Trek in search of the morals, meanings, and messages. This week, Far Beyond the Stars, an episode of Star Trek that takes place in another time and another place, New York City in 1953, and asks us to consider who is the dreamer and who is the dream. We'll get into the story in just a moment, but first, I'll tell you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. But the bigger question is right now, John, is who is the trivia master and who is the trivia? Or what is the trivia? But I know that John is the trivia master, and here is this week's trivia. Well, thank you for that. So Far Beyond the Stars is a story that was conceived by Mark Scott Zickrey. And we've mentioned Mark before way back in the TNG days, and we pointed out that he got the story credit for the Season 4 episode, First Contact. You may also recall from that time that we mentioned that he is known for having written the Twilight Zone companion book. This episode of DS9... Had a pretty unique story cycle, though, and it all starts with a pitch Mark had written in which an alien was using Jake to explore humanity through this kind of implanted experience as a science fiction writer in the 1950s. Ira didn't love the story, but he did love the idea of doing something set in the 50s with some sci-fi writers, so he dug a little deeper and came up with the premise, then he asked Mark to re-pitch it. And that new pitch is the one that stuck. So then it was up to Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler to really get it into shape for TV. Therefore, they are the ones who get the teleplay credit for this one. The episode is directed by Avery Brooks. Absolutely stunning when you consider not only how far out of step with the rest of DS9 this is, but also that he is the star of this one, very front and center. It's much easier for an actor who is directing 
to have a diminished role. And in most of Star Trek, you will see that that is the case, with a few exceptions, this being a really big one. The episode got three Emmy nominations, art direction, costume design, and hairstyling. Unfortunately, it didn't pick up an award that night. Let's get into some historical trivia. We have a mention here of the Amsterdam News, and that is in fact the oldest black newspaper in America, first published in 1909 and still going today. And I feel like it's also important to put 1953 into context. There was less on the national stage when it came to major civil rights stories. Certainly, there were many civil rights stories going on, many on a local basis. Um, I encourage you to look those up. Uh, but we're sort of in between some of the major stories that played out on the national stage. But what else was going on? Well, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower and Richard Nixon are sworn in as president and vice president of the United States. The Korean War ends in July of 1953. The first Corvette rolls off the assembly line and the first Burger King opens. But I feel it's more important to talk about literature, storytelling, and censorship, since that's important to today's discussion. In 1953, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 was published. The Crucible by Arthur Miller opened on Broadway. Playboy magazine made its debut, and coincidentally, the state of Georgia initiated a state board of literature censorship, which persisted for nearly 20 years. Not much to say here about guest stars. All of our regular cast are back, but playing different people. And I guess we'll see how that plays out. And now, far beyond the stars, but unfortunately not far from our own headlines, we have the story of Benny Russell. Prologue. Business as usual on DS9, which means there's still the persistent threat of annihilation from the Dominion, even though the threat has stayed just slightly farther away. The USS Cortez, along with Captain Sisko's old friend Captain Swafford, has been lost to the Jem'Hadar. There's a visitor on board DS9, though. With the recent cooling down of the threat, Joseph Sisko has taken the opportunity to visit his son and grandson. They're long overdue for a family dinner, but the weight of the war has hung over Ben Sisko heavily. He's not sure he can keep doing what he's doing, facing the losses. His thoughts are interrupted, though, when he sees an odd-looking figure, a bespectacled man in a 20th century suit passing through ops. He's there, and then he's gone. Moments later, Benjamin walks through a corridor on DS9 with Cassidy Yates as she reassures him that her next trip won't take her anywhere near Cardassian space. As they talk, a man in a baseball uniform strolls the hall and yells out to the captain, "'Hey, Benny, you catch the game?' and then disappears through a doorway. Cassidy didn't see him at all, but Benjamin follows, and entering the same doorway, he finds himself on a busy New York street from centuries ago. Taken off guard, he's hit by a taxi and knocked unconscious, only to wake up in DS9's infirmary with the doctor and Cassidy and others worried that the synaptic potentials in Sisko's brain that he was experiencing before as a vision from the prophets 
have returned. And then, just like that, Benjamin Sisko is in 20th century New York again, this time holding a copy of Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine and getting an earful from the short, animated newsstand boy who prefers his stories grounded in reality. Then a friend shows up, Albert, who looks like a familiar Irish engineering chief to escort Benny to work. Act 1. At the office of Incredible Tales, a sci-fi pulp magazine, we meet the staff. A stuffy English writer named Julius, another writer and his wife, the headstrong Kay Eaton. There's also Herbert Rossoff, who has a distinctive voice but has smaller ears than you might expect. They're all under the watchful eye of editor Douglas Pabst, who keeps him in order. That was the man who Cisco first saw on DS9 and Ops, and he bears a passing resemblance to someone we know who has an unnaturally smooth face. They're all bickering about tea, about donuts, about pay rates, about the competition. Then it's time for their head artist, Roy Rittenhouse, to come in with some fresh artwork. Roy has a booming voice and a lot of presence, the kind of guy you could see commanding a Klingon fleet in another life. The writers clamor for the drawings that might serve as inspiration for their next stories. As those get doled out, most of them promising to be schlock, one catches the eye of Benny Russell, the writer who bears a striking resemblance to the captain of a certain former Cardassian space station. It's a very 1950s ring-type station with a rocket zooming by. It speaks to Benny. He'll come up with something. There's other news, too. The publisher of the magazine has decided to run photos of the writers with two implicit exceptions. Kay will sit out, since she writes as K.C. Hunter, assumed by their readership to be a man, and Benny. Well, the publisher, Mr. Stone, feels that the audience isn't ready to see a black face as a writer in their magazine. Herb pushes back, but Mr. Pabst is adamant that they stick with Mr. Stone's demands and the audience's expectations. At night, Benny leaves the office and the artwork blows out of his hands. A couple of plainclothes police officers catch it and immediately start harassing Benny. They're familiar too, like a lanky politician and his smarmy handler. But they've got no time to bring Benny in for questioning. They just assume he's the janitor and that he'd better stay out of trouble. Getting closer to home, Benny stops himself at the words of a street preacher one who has a familial, fatherly look, who admonishes him to write the words that will let his readers see the glory of what lies ahead. Finally at home, Benny searches for inspiration in that drawing of a space station. When he writes the words about Captain Benjamin Sisko staring out a window, Benny looks out his own window and sees himself in a futuristic uniform looking back at him. Act Two the next morning, Benny stops by his local diner for breakfast and to see the lovely waitress who he definitely is meant to be with in this or any other life. He's excited to share that he has written the best story of his career, but Cassie is more pragmatic. Where will that get him? Does it pay the bills? In walks Willie Hawkins, baseball star with his deep baritone voice and full of swagger and very little self-awareness. His flirtation with Cassie falls flat, so he steers toward a table full of young women in the room. Next in is Jimmy, just a kid, 
about a hustler trying to unload a watch that he acquired. Benny acts fatherly toward Jimmy, trying to offer advice that will keep him out of trouble. Jimmy scoffs, though, that Benny is just a writer with fantastical notions of colored people on the moon. Back at the office, the other writers give a first read to Benny's new story. They're all intrigued. They love it. The characters, the location, even Mr. Papp's new secretary, Darlene, loves it. She's particularly intrigued by a character who's a woman with a worm in her belly. Maybe it speaks to something in her. The story, Deep Space Nine, is very good. It's cover story material. It's just not going to end up there because Mr. Paps tells them all the business reality. A story about a Negro captain will not fly with their audience. He has to answer to them, to the distributors, the publisher, Mr. Stone. It's a non-starter. The other writers come to Benny's defense, but it's no good. Benny pushes for his vision of the story, but Pap's ultimatum is that he changed the captain to a white man or the story doesn't get published at all. Act 3. Consoling himself at the diner, Benny doesn't get much help from Cassie. She's more concerned about what happens today. It's worse with Jemmy, who thinks no matter what, nobody is going to buy a story about black people in space. Cassie is still in love with him, though, even if his writing may not go anywhere. At night, Benny encounters the street preacher again with a few words about the prophets and following their path to righteousness by writing the words. Late night in his apartment, Benny is inspired again to write. He bangs away on his typewriter, and at the point of exhaustion, it's Cassie who is there to wake him. Benny forgot about their date, but it's okay. He was writing more about Ben Sisko and Deep Space Nine. They dance together a little, but as they dance, Benny is seeing and hearing things from his story. He hears Cassie mention the Dominion. He sees them dancing in a futuristic space station. It shakes him, and he stumbles away toward his piano, thinking he's lost his mind. Act 4. Mr. Pabst has the same question for Benny. Here he was told that the story would not be published, and what does he do? Write six more in the ongoing saga of Deep Space Nine. Incredible tales won't run them, but maybe, as some of the others suggest, Benny could self-publish. Or maybe he changes the ending so the whole thing was a dream. It's not ideal, but Benny would rather the story get published than not, so a dream it is. And he's elated. He bumps into Jimmy on the street and offers to buy him lunch so he can celebrate, but Jimmy's got something big going down, and he can't. Benny just heads to the diner anyway, where Willie is hitting on Cassie, but the good news overshadows Willie's heroics on the baseball diamond. Out for a celebration, Benny and Cassie hit the town. There's jazz, there's dancing, there's singing in the streets. And then the street preacher shows up with a few words. This is only the beginning. And sometimes the path leads to darkness. When he reaches out to Benny's ear, he pulls back his fingers to reveal a little blood and the warning that hope and despair walk arm in arm. A few shots ring out from some distance away. When Benny runs to the scene, he finds Jemmy, shot dead, laying in the street. When Benny talks back to the cops, the same two he encountered before, asking why Jemmy was killed for breaking into a car, they take it out on him beating him roughly there in front of the gathering crowd.
Act 5. Some time has passed, and Benny is able to go back to work, still smarting from the terrible beating he took. It's the day his story is to be published, and he's going to get a copy of Incredible Tales in person. Walking with a cane, he arrives at the office, greeted by his co-workers who are glad to see him, and a little taken aback at his condition, proud but still hurt by what he's been through. They're all ready to receive the new issue, and in walks Pabst. There is no magazine. The publisher, Mr. Stone, had the entire print run pulped, as it didn't reach their usual editorial standards. Benny puts it together. The run was destroyed because of his story, a story about a black man in command of a space station. Furthermore, when Pabst reports that Stone has deemed Benny's services no longer necessary, it sends Benny over the edge. He quits, and as he quits, he tears into Pabst. He can kill a story, but he can't destroy an idea. The reality is that Benny created a story, a story that exists and can't be destroyed no matter what. He breaks down, falling to the floor, and is later carried out on a stretcher to an ambulance. Benny wakes up in the ambulance, his clothes changed into a Starfleet uniform, watched over by the street preacher who tells him that he is the dreamer and the dream. Benjamin Sisko wakes up in the Deep Space Nine infirmary. He's only been out a few minutes, according to Dr. Bashir, even though it felt like a lot longer to Ben. Joseph Sisko is prepared to go back home to Earth, but he asks his son if he's okay now, and if he's decided to stay in his current job. He has. Now he's questioning things, though. He proposes to his father that maybe they're real, or maybe Benny Russell is real, and they're the products of his imagination. As Ben Sisko looks out a window of Deep Space Nine into the vastness of space, the reflection is not his, but Benny Russell. The End Absolutely fabulous recap, John, and it does pose a lot of questions. And usually we get into a, a somewhat of a repartee back and forth, but... Right now, I think we're just going to jump straight into it. I, I think we have to. And thank you, by the way. I mean, the, this was an interesting one to write because the writing in the episode is so good that really, you know, the work was there for me to, to just summarize. So I appreciate it. And I will say this, that from the recap, I did leave out some material. In particular, I left out some of the visual tricks in my recap. It was nice to see Benny seeing some of the DS9 characters come into and out of his existence, but we couldn't really just verbalize every visual moment there. I will say, though, I wanted to leave that in my note here because it's such a great conceit of the episode. I, I, I love the back and forth of him on DS9 seeing those characters and then in New York seeing the DS9 characters. I will say, bummer to lose the Cortez. We just talked about it and now gone. But I really appreciate the callback, keeping the universe consistent here and, and at least letting us feel like we have some stakes, like there's some investment mm -hmm. in what's happening for the characters. And you can tell that Cisco is mired in the job by just the, the sheer amount of pads that are on his uh, desk. You know work is tough when you got a pad for everything. <laughs> for everything. But I also do like how they, they hearken back to 
famous discussion, I should say, or a famous scene in Star Trek. And when Cisco was, he was confessing to, to Joseph that the weight of the world is on his shoulders and he's, he's being worn down by making the decisions of who lives and who dies. It sounds fairly familiar if you're a Star Trek fan from all the way back. This is what Christopher Pike was saying to Dr. Boyce in the cage. I am so glad you mentioned that in your notes because I thought the same thing and it, it, it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, I don't know if they had that in mind, but it definitely works here. Speaking of Joseph, regardless of all the brilliant casting that we have in this episode and finding the character types where they belong, I love that we have Joseph on board DS9 early on. Even if the episode didn't go where it does, it's just good to have him back because he's somebody who needs to be there since we introduced his concerns about his family early on. You know, it's a little thing, but it's one of those places where DS9 gets it right rather than, say, what we had like in TNG a lot of times where you'd introduce somebody significant and then you'd barely see them again. Uh, so this is mm-hmm. having that consistency, having that family bond there, seeing him on screen a few times before, just saying, like, I'm concerned about you, I'm concerned about Jake. Then when it's safe, I'm going to get to where you are to see you in person right away. I thought that was very effective. Oh, oh, and I love the lineup. There are so many references in this episode, and we're not going to hit them all, but I love the lineup of luminary authors who get mentioned, like H.G. Wells and Ted Sturgeon, Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein. They just go on and on. Just to go back to Joseph, I think that it's significant to have him there because I think if there's only one person in the universe that— Cisco can just completely lean on in every possible way it would be his father. Yes, 100%. But I, I want to go back to something that you said in the trivia, where this episode was up for three awards, and they were mm-hmm. all pretty much production-based awards. The wardrobe in this episode is phenomenal. And for me, I love period eyewear because I wear glasses. I'm yeah. wearing contacts, you know, mostly now, mm-hmm. but I wear glasses. And I have to say that... Renee's look, everyone looked great, yeah. but Renee's look in particular looked so uncannily good. <laughs> yes. You just, <laughs> yeah, you, you could take a picture of him, age it a little bit, and then just totally pass it off as something that happened in the 50s. He, he was born to play yeah. that part. Mm-hmm. One thing that I love in the magazine office, I absolutely love the conceit of writing the story to fit the artwork <laughs> because it's shorthand for cheap. And it's what a lot of those pulp magazines did. I mean, it's sort of like making a movie to fit a poster, which is always mm-hmm. a bad idea, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but uh, they, they did it here and it just, it, it plays brilliantly. Yeah. And I also like how when Rittenhouse brings out the illustrations, mm-hmm. the first two illustrations were very kind of sexy, sexist, very trashy, pulpy. Yep. And then all of a sudden the station comes out yes. and nobody cares about it. Yeah except for Benny, because we just have that connection. And I do love the little DS slash nine on the outer ring Yeah, it, that's on the illustration. And if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, U.S. Air Force uh, on mm-hmm. there. Yeah, because, of course, NASA yeah. NASA didn't exist at the time. So exactly. that, it's perfect. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, speaking of that, I really want Eagle Moss to make the Far Beyond the Stars collection. Make, make that version of everything. The the Roy Rittenhouse DS9 and Defiant, uh, some of that pulp cover art, just do it all because it looks great. 
Okay, so I'm just basically right now being that meme out there, like shut up and take my yeah. money. I'm that <laughs> you, meme. You are right that now. guy. Yeah, I'm that guy right now. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love the little nods to things that are hidden in the production, like the like the the window signage from the magazine, the Arthur Trill in large letters. Yes. I thought that was just so well placed. And speaking of well placed, Marco Limo and Jeffrey Combs oh. as as just these nasty, nefarious, flatfoot detectives. Come on. How much more perfect could that you, be? You could not invent a thing that is more perfect than that. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Um, and, and speaking of perfectly fitting character to type, character to, to actor, or their, their Deep Space Nine alter egos, I love, I love Pap saying, Herb's been upset ever since Joseph Stalin died. I love it. I, I mean, the, the bickering between Herb and Pabst, I mean, totally appropriate, of course, for Quark to call Odo a fascist, which he did last season. Uh, but it's funny here to imply that Quark, Herb, is the pinko. Because, of course, Quark right. is, you know, the, the capitalist to the extreme. Uh, but, it oh, it's so good. So great to see their yeah. banter. And I mean, it, it's there where it's a little bit more significant. It was earlier with the donuts and and the and the negotiation for the fees and how many cents they were going to write for the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was just yep. perfect. Yep. You know, so perfect. I'm going to say perfect a lot in this episode. So spoiler <laughs> alert. Oh, by the way, I loved when Michael Dorn comes in with his red suit and his big swagger and his persona. Uh, and I'm just saying that he pulls off the big red suit better than he did in your cordially invited. Ooh, I'm just saying, yeah, by far. Sorry, not sorry. By far, mm-hmm. <laughs> but. How good is Ciroc really oh. in this episode? Yeah. I mean, he flexed so hard, it, uh, his, just his acting ability, and seeing a completely different gear yeah. for Ciroc. Yeah. Yeah. It, and I love it, that. It, it's really, I, I don't know how much of it was his choice or uh, Avery's choice or whatever, but, but taking that character to an extreme and playing totally opposite to type, uh, was great. And I think that he's so good as Jake anyway that we already have a built-in level of sympathy for him. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, just wonderfully done. But I also kind of like how, how you mentioned before that it was pitched by um, uh, originally as uh, Jake being the focus of the story as the writer. Yeah. Now, Cisco as Benny is the writer, giving advice as a writer and a father to Jimmy, who's Jake. Yeah. It just, it seems like yeah, I see how it wouldn't have worked maybe at the original outset, but I see how it works now. And it's just, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Those two together. Sorak and, and Avery are amazing together. Yeah. Um, speaking of phenomenal, Terry reading Darlene, reading Dax is amazing. <sighs> She's wonderful. I'm so glad that we didn't get too much of her because it could have come across as just like, oh, we're dropping in the comic relief. But mm-hmm. the amount of her that we get and just so perfectly placed, talking about the worm in the belly... It's great, great. Mm-hmm. Also, funny line, I love giving Bashir the line, or Julius, we're writers, not Vikings. Wonderful. <laughs> I want to use that in my daily life. So thank you, <laughs> Ira and Hans. Yeah. Now, I love how they played uh, Casey and Julius as the couple. Mm-hmm. But I also love how Casey also sticks up for herself and says, you know, like, you know, we need more strong women characters in science fiction. I'm always saying that. And I love how Casey is also kind of analogous to DC 
Fontana. Uh, oh, absolutely. Of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I, this is probably not the right place in our show for it, but I feel like this show could and will be all over the map, and it could go on for hours and hours. But I, I do want to mention here really quickly that there were some alternate endings that got kicked around or were at least speculated upon by people on the staff and by people who watched it after it first came out. You know, there's the possibility that Pat's could have just published the story and that the stone could have let the magazine out with the story as is you know and that that would have taken us one direction sort of the what if happy ending benny could have self-published and you could have created another alternate ending here possibly happy ending although would we have really been satisfied with it if only you know a print run i believe they said of 50 or 100 or Another magazine could have taken it. Maybe Galaxy was the more progressive magazine that could have taken a story and run with it. Mm. But then there was another ending that they had really seriously considered, which is the TV ending with Benny Russell at a studio on the set of Deep Space Nine holding a script for Star Trek Deep Space Nine by Benny Russell. And Wouldn't that have been amazing? It would have been amazing. However, <laughs> however... It then would have meant that all of Star Trek was a dream, or at least mm. all of Deep Space Nine was a dream. So, and yeah. I don't think that's totally wrong. And we'll get into storytelling and and that kind of uh, the meta of it later. But I just wanted to sort of plant that idea because those were some of the other ideas kicked around. Uh, I do like the idea, um, the the attention to detail that. Benny, instead of of just shelving the story, wrote six more stories, and well, I mean, a total of six stories. Yeah. And right now, we're in the sixth season of Deep Space Nine, so yes. there is a nice little bit of continuity that is being built into yeah. that detail. Love that symmetry. I like that a yeah. lot. Yeah, you know, I found Benny's beating by the two cops by um, by Mark Alamo and Jeffrey Combs very effective in that it really evoked a lot of uh, disturbing feelings when I was watching that, especially when they flashed forward to Wayun and Dukat. Um, I think that that was smart to use their those um, characters to soften the blow so that it didn't seem as uh, tangibly real, that those, especially at the way that they shot that angle because mm-hmm. it looked like, you know, Benny was getting stomped on by two white cops. Yeah. But when you put Dukat and Wayun in there, it takes the context to a completely different direction. And I thought that was a smart choice. I can't expound my love for Renee's performance more in this episode than uh, we have time to talk about Mm -hmm. this episode. So Mm -hmm. I will pretty much just leave it that I think his his performance and the apologist that uh, the, the apology that's behind his eyes that he can't allow to come to the forefront is something that an actor of his quality is able to show that struggle of knowing what is morally right, but not being able to do anything about it. And then becoming the dog like Herb calls him yeah. because he is just a servant to the, the powers that be. It's just amazing to watch as is, Avery and Benny's soliloquy. I think that anyone who has seen this episode before, if you have, you know what I'm talking about. If you're first time watching this episode or have not yet watched this episode, sit down and take a breath when you watch that. 
I love how Benny was uniformed at the end. Like you said, he was in the in the hospital uh, ambulance, and he was being taken away. And when he woke up, it was very Wizard of Oz. Uh, you 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 have not read my notes ahead, but yes, Wizard of Oz is <laughs> in my notes. And, but but played brilliantly. Sometimes when when you do a, a Wizard of Oz take like that, it, it comes across as parody or just sort of you know too much shorthand and and here it just felt like it had heart it felt like it had depth and i i love mm-hmm. that they were able to give both you and i and probably many many viewers that same sense i was going to put together a pitch for a story about a plucky wise cracking computer but i just don't think mr pabst is ready for it We'll get back to Far Beyond the Stars in just a moment, but first a word from this week's sponsors. When it comes to paying off debt, it can often feel like an uphill battle. High interest rates resulting in minimum monthly payments keeps you in an endless cycle of debt. Upstart can help you get ahead. You know, Norman, I was taking a look at upstart.com, and um, I'm really impressed that it, it is a fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan and you can do it all online. So I, you know, a lot of people have debt problems, debt questions, and whatever it might be, it could be credit cards, it could be consolidating high interest debt, funding personal expenses. Over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Now, it's not like other lenders. Upstart looks at more than just your credit score. I know that that whole process of adjusting your credit score can feel very impersonal and like a a hill that you can't climb. Well, they look at everything else as well. It's credit score, uh, income, employment history. That means that Upstart can actually offer smarter rates with trusted partners. And the whole thing takes maybe five minutes. Uh, You just go online. They do a rate check and you can see the rate. This is my favorite part of it. You can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. And you can receive those funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Now, in today's state of the economy, the one thing that you always want to keep your eye on are your finances. So find out how Upstart can help you lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash mission log. That's upstart.com slash mission log. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Now, loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash mission log. Comedians, actors, and Star Trek superfans Paul F. Tompkins and Tawny Newsom are back for season two of Star Trek, the pod directive. Hey, I'll say something about that show. I enjoy it. It's funny. They have great guests. And Paul F. Tompkins might just be the second best dressed podcaster in the Star Trek podcast world. Not, not going to say who's number one. I'm just saying that I, I like Paul's style. This season, you can journey even further behind the scenes with Tawny and Paul as they explore the power of Star Trek's influence on our lives. Guests range from Trek icons and luminaries like Michelle Yeoh to Star Trek Lower Decks' Jack Quaid to even more guests you'll have to hear to believe, all sharing one thing, their love for Star Trek. 
Now, episodes vary from hilariously funny interviews of first memories with Trek to incredibly deep and introspective conversations about society, family, and values, always focusing on the importance of Star Trek and its amazing impact on the world. And since Tawny and Mariner are pretty much flip side of the same slip of latinum, I have her voice in my head, rent-free, 24-7, which is always a good thing. So listen now. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing (laughs) wrong with that at all. Not at all. Not at all. I love it. You love it. We all love it. Mm -hmm. So listen now to Star Trek, the pod directive on Apple Podcasts, and never miss an episode. Live long and prosper. Norman, before we recorded the show tonight, you and I had a little chat about how much we were going to try to cover versus how much we knew that we just had to leave out. Mm -hmm. So I I feel like this is a discussion we have to start by saying that I at least – I feel wholly unequipped to discuss this episode, maybe in the depth that it deserves, because it's one of those that a team of historians and social experts could write volumes about. Now, what we do, you and I, we we watch, we learn, we talk, and we are going to miss many, many things, and and that's okay. We're giving our discussion week after week out to you, our audience, in order to keep the conversation about Star Trek going. So we're not the final word by any stretch. Um, I I just, maybe that's saying uh, too much there, but I just feel like we needed to get that out because um, there's a lot to cover here, and there are so many angles that we could take with this episode. Well, there are certain episodes that they're very apparent that they have a very specific through line. There's a very specific A to B or C to D. Very, very obvious in some episodes. This episode is not that episode or those episodes. This episode is phenomenally complex, phenomenally Uh, layered. And there are a lot of discussion points that you can literally just tackle with any particular topic, specifically what we're going to talk about right now. Yeah. So right off the bat, there are themes that uh, I want to express that, that uh, you know, we... I feel like with you and I uh, doing this, you know, we're only just two voices, two fans examining an episode that anybody can bring their own perspective and their their own set of experiences to. Right away, I, I look at this and I think, you know, one of the central tragedies here is this idea of going along to get along. And that is the the place that other characters try to force Benny Russell into. And I feel like that's the kind of racism that doesn't get as much attention as a more blatant kind does. I won't say it's worse because they're both awful, but this kind is internally imposed. And it's usually carried out by people of good intent, like our characters here. You you were so good at mentioning a moment ago about Rene playing uh, Pabst. And what's going on behind those eyes is the combination of guilt and shame, but it's also this uh, like self-preservation. I have to preserve the magazine. I have to preserve my job. I have to preserve the jobs of these other people who work here. I'm just a cog in this machine. Mm-hmm. I have to go along to get along. And the, the insidious part of that then is that it gets imposed on somebody else like Benny Russell. Now you have to go along to get along. You want to work here another day? You have to go along. We all sit here and swallow that it's a terrible situation, but there's nothing we can do about it. Because we're powerless, we have to hand over any power we would have 
to somebody else. Well, you know, several decades later after this episode uh, takes place in 1953, Malcolm X famously says that you cannot have racism without capitalism. Capitalism yeah. is the driving force that's, that Paps serves. He serves Stone. He serves his publishers. He said that he's not a crusader. You know, he's an editor. He has to make sure that the paper goes out on time so that the publishers make their money so that everyone up there gets paid. But at what cost? At what cost? And who's he protecting? And why? And that's why yeah. someone like Pabst is both, uh, he's tragic and dangerous because you mm-hmm. understand that if he actually had the ability to exercise his moral authority over things, he probably would. At what risk to him, though? And it all is systemic to, to answering the financial powers that be. Yeah. You know, the, there are parts of this story that are far removed from my experience. There are parts of the story that hit very close to home, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. So I've mentioned on the show many times before that I, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, and, and I grew up in a place where I heard the stories about racist acts in the generation before me, like the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. I don't know how many times I drove past it. It's right there. It's you know restored, and there's a monument there for what happened. There was the use of fire hoses on black protesters, and the the tyranny of people like Bull Connor, and just you know you drive around downtown Birmingham. It's just right there. You look down a street, look at a park, and go, yeah, that all of that happened right there. That news footage that we see in black and white today, it just happened right there, or or even something that was less violent, like the the simple acceptance of something, like not allowing people of color to sit at a lunch counter with white patrons. You know, that, that happened at places that I would go into after that time had passed. And when I was living there and as a student, we'd study it, we'd talk about it, and we, we kind of pat ourselves on the back for not being that bad anymore. But now, as of our recording of this show, I am farther removed from those days when I was a student than I was at the time from those historic events. And I still have to ask myself, in what ways are we better Mm-hmm. Uh, are we actually making progress here? Because all you need to do is read the news. All you need to do is, you know, hear the outrage of protest and ask yourself what progress has actually been made. And it's a really unsettling thing to try to wrap your mind around. And and to me, though, this is why we have to keep telling these stories. This is why an episode like this is still so powerful, and we'll talk about the many other powerful ways that it it affects us. But specifically, it's this power of fiction to activate our brains with, well, well, with all three of those persuasions that we've talked about on Mission Log before, ethos, pathos, and logos, to actually get us to share in empathy for situations that we may not have lived you know, there's this great emotional component to the story that's being told, um, in addition to and concurrent with the essentially a history lesson that's going on here, too. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in 1998, uh, this uh, aired in February 1998, Black History Month, it spoke to an audience then. 
it has not stopped speaking to an audience since then, 20-plus years since this first aired. You know, when I'm looking at this episode, you're really seeing kind of like these these two titanic forces that are coming to a head in 1953. That's Benny Russell and what he represents and what Pabst represents. And I think the reason why that this the systemic issue of racism has not yet been eradicated from society is because of people like Pabst. And I know that I've said this before, but I want to mm-hmm. reiterate this because his role is so important in this episode because he's what's known as like this middle management, mid-tier buffer and layer between true racist capitalists that own the production of everything and mm-hmm. like Stone, because we all know that Stone wouldn't have pulped the magazine if he didn't think that it would have sold, but it wouldn't have sold. So he decided to not one, burn his money essentially by yeah. not selling it, by making that point. So he didn't pulp it just because no one wants to just throw away money. He might have just lit up just a pile of money on fire. He would have done the exact same thing. But it's because of these middle-tier, middle-management layers that allow the expectations of somebody like Benny to be maneuvered in such ways. And the same thing with KC, those characters. They are not allowed to be the people that they are, that they are destined to be. They're not allowed to be free, to think, to work to act, to be seen, to be regarded uh, with their peers because of somebody like Pabst. And Pabst makes it palatable for those restrictions on their characters to be enforced. It's, it's like he said here in this particular phrase, uh, particular scene. Mm-hmm. Pabst says, oh, I like it all right. It's good. It's very good. But, you know, I can't print it. And Benny says, why not? And he goes, oh, come on, Benny. Your hero's a Negro captain, the head of a space station, for Christ's sake. And then he says, what's wrong with that? And Pap says, people won't accept it. It's not believable. And this is the kicker. This is, oh, this is so mm-hmm. perfect. Herbert, Armin Shimmerman's Herbert. And men from Mars are? <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. But this is really the, the crux of this entire episode. Look, Benny, I'm a magazine editor. I'm not a crusader. I'm not here to change the world. I'm here to put out a magazine. Now, that's my job. That means I have to answer to the publisher, the national distributors, the wholesalers, and none of them are going to want to put this story on the newsstand. For all we know, it could cause a race riot. That is the apologist in a nutshell, protecting one side of the equation and the other side of the equation. Isn't it the equivalent of just, well, I was doing my job. I was just taking orders. Exactly. You know, I, can't, I can't stick my neck out here for what's actually right, even though I'll give enough lip service to say that I know what's right. I, I just, I can't make it uncomfortable for myself or for the other, you know, hypothetical people here who might feel discomfort from a decision. But the gaslighting, though, at the very end, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's not personal, Benny. As far as our readers are concerned, Benny Russell is as white as they are. Let's just keep it that way. My God. Yeah. That that gaslighting could not be more expertly executed at that point in time. Let's talk about this decision to make it a dream. As obviously the dream becomes a theme in the episode here. Herb says, making it a dream guts the story. 
And it's Julius who, who's sort of like, well, but may, maybe that would work. And then there's a discussion. Well, but, but if it's six, uh, six serialized versions of this, we, you know, it, can you do that on the first one? But then you keep going with the others. Doesn't it take away? And then Benny actually decides to go along with it because at least he gets the story out there. I agree with her that it does gut the story. And at the same time, it's almost necessary. It's almost necessary that we have this framework of the dream around it. Because I think to myself, isn't that the whole pretense of Star Trek in a way? That we can tell the stories that we want to tell because we're doing it in a science fiction context rather than real life. You know, this isn't Gene Roddenberry with The Lieutenant, where he, he was doing a story about racism taking place then and now in the early 1960s. No, no, no. We can move it a few hundred years in the future. And then that way, we can get it in front of an audience. And that way, we can say whatever we want. That way, the show actually gets on the air. Mm-hmm. It stays on the air. People see it. But then I wonder, well, first of all, is it always the people who need to see it (laughs) not necessarily but sometimes they are sometimes those are the same people who need to see it who will stick around for it but by i I just i wonder your opinion by making it a dream or in this case making it science fiction does that does it help or does it hurt the message getting out there well i think one making it a dream it compromises the integrity of benny's vision That's not what Benny wrote. He said that, and Herb agreed with it. And Herb is, his character is like the brutal, honest truth of the situation at hand. Uh, But Benny wants his story to be published because the other side of the equation is, if you get it published, even if the ending changes, you still get the majority of it out there in the public's space. Sure, that's a victory, but at what cost? Mm. Because once you make a concession concessions will always then appear in the negotiation. And there are writers out there that have worked slavishly in the business for years and not really evolved from where they want to be because they are dead set on making sure that the integrity of their vision is intact. So when it comes to does science fiction serve it better? Well, I mean, that's what Star Trek is, isn't it? Yeah, that's sort of what I'm saying. It's like, I I think, you know, maybe where we're splitting hairs here is that uh, this is a concession that is forced on a writer. Mm -hmm. We're we're actually changing the meta of your story, even though the message of the story might still be the same, as opposed to starting over wholesale as the way you've got a Gene Roddenberry reinventing the storytelling Mm -hmm. by saying, okay, if I can't tell my story over here, I'm going to tell my story in this new place and tell the stories I want to tell. It's it's not as much a compromise. It is a a self-invented way to get the story out, change the context in order to get the story out. Yeah, so I, I think it's not the worst thing but in this case, maybe the worst part of it is that it is a forced compromise. And then you you are, gosh, it, it's sort of like asking that audience in 1953 to say, you know, oh, well, well we want to just stretch your imagination a little bit, but don't worry. It, it's not really a real thing that could happen. It's just a dream. Well, I think the concession, using that term in one sense, 
is just basically kind of this uh, this subtle and subliminal version of racism because you're telling Benny that his story isn't good enough. So yeah. just make this change and then we'll publish it, but we all know what happens after that. The difference between what Gene was doing and making the change from one medium or one genre to another is that he could do that because Gene wasn't black. Yeah. I mean, I know that th- yeah. I know that saying that might just, you know, be uh, you know, a a bucket of cold water on some people, but that's the truth. Benny's a black yeah. man trying to write in a white man's world, and he couldn't yeah. do it unless he changes the integrity of his story. Gene didn't have to change the integrity, he just had to change the vehicle. So, yeah. He was still able yeah. to get his story out there regardless. True. But let's let's go um a little bit more say esoteric in a twilight zone kind of way with this whole aspect of the dreamer and the dream. Oh, let's do it. So, <laughs> where where are we with Joseph Sisko being I think the representative of the prophets in this fever dream that I believe was initiated by the prophets in order to say get Sisko's maybe his um determination back on track because the very beginning of the episode he was mired in pads and despair and he's willing to give it all up and then the prophets intervene so we see this metaphysical representation of joseph sisko as this biblical prophet in a sense you know a bible thundering bible um Mm -hmm. prophet and he's steering benny who's sisko and who's benny again to write what needs to be written about Deep Space Nine. What exactly needs to be written about Deep Space Nine, aside from Deep Space Nine itself, to be, what, a realization that it must be saved, salvaged, uh, continued? I I don't exactly know where that was going. I am so glad that you said that because... (laughs) <laughs> that that's something that I actually have in my closing notes, maybe in a in a slightly different way. But I, I'm glad you brought it up here because to me that is it, it's an inconvenient truth of this episode, which is that we're telling a great story, uh, putting one foot in the past and one foot in the present. The present being Deep Space Nine's present, telling this thoughtful historic story tackling big issues, big ideas. But I think the inclusion of this prophet's thread in it, it dramatically serves a purpose, but I don't know if it necessarily serves an overall story purpose in the big arc for Deep Space Nine. We did start out with this idea of Cisco questioning his value there, or not necessarily his value there, but but his, his stamina there, his ability to stay in command with all of this terrible stuff going on around him. But was this the lesson that the prophets felt like they needed to teach in order to get him to stay? Because it seems extremely obtuse mm-hmm. <laughs> to actually get to that point. I think it's a great use of Joseph Sisko, but I think they might have been trying to solve the wrong problem with having Joseph Sisko in that role. I'm just wondering if they were trying to tap into some type of historical DNA in Sisko with the struggle of of um, of racism as as a means to find some way to illustrate that look at the the war that went on with your people in the past and mm-hmm. the struggle that they have gone through and they have persevered through to this time 
to get to Deep Space Nine. And it was through their perseverance that won the war against racism. Now that same perseverance yeah. is in your DNA. It's in your mm-hmm. genetic, genetic, you know, um, genetic material of being a black man mm-hmm. that may translate into, okay, we have to win this war against all odds, against the cost of the Dominion and the people that we're going to lose because the results would be unthinkable if we don't. Yeah. So it's yeah. time to regroup, refocus, and reattack the situation. I do want to bring up something here that I, I think is so powerful about Benny's breakdown, uh, because it, it, it's not just the personal. I mean, clearly it's the personal struggle that he's been through physically, emotionally. But there's also something really interesting here at the core. You can't destroy an idea. And I feel like that moment resonates because it's so full of truth to the point of being painful, um, that, that this being the last thing that you can hold on to. So over and over throughout history, There are those in charge who will do what they can to stamp out a radical idea that challenges the order of things. They burn books, they kill the instigators, they tarnish a movement, but the ideas remain. And for every regime that has ever censored an idea or curtailed a bit of speech, there are a thousand more places where those ideas will flourish if they're worthy and they'll take root. And I, I just, I absolutely was moved by that scene, as we all are, as we all should be. Avery's performance is exceptional. But there is something that truly is heartfelt and should sit with everybody, no matter what their experience is, that no matter what, an idea can take root, can sit in your mind, and regardless it can stay there. There's nobody that can take that away. You know, as dire as the situation is in this episode with not getting the story published, with having, you know, personal rights infringed physically, his physical space is infringed, the idea still exists. And there's a real beauty to that amidst all the horror. Mm-hmm. There's um, I'm not exactly sure where it came from, but there is an axiom that basically says that there's nothing more powerful than an idea. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's something that, like Ben says, or Benny says, that's ancient knowledge. Storytelling uh, is the core of, or is at the core of human existence, you know, from the very basic cave paintings to sitting around the campfire to, you know, um, oral traditions. Well, this is where some of the greatest ideas have come from. And they have withstood the test of time, because great ideas have been able to inspire to uh, inspire people greatly on both sides of the equation. You know, someone once yeah. believed that uh, going into uh, pubs at a certain point in time in the early 1930s and stirring up nationalism in Germany was a good idea. Well, it was a good idea for somebody. Um, but that is the power of the idea, the inception point of something that you believe in so wholeheartedly that you're able to probably move mountains with your mind. And I, maybe that's what the, the prophets were trying to do to Cisco at this time to plan mm-hmm. that idea, mm-hmm. something that he knows that cannot be destroyed, 
cannot be removed by despair, by fear, by, you know, cowardice, by shame. You know, the idea that Deep Space Nine and the Federation must win the war, you know, is yeah. an idea that cannot be broken. Um, but that is, again, we don't have nearly enough time <laughs> in this episode <laughs> to talk about it. One thing I wanted to kind of like pivot to a little bit is I love, um, I, I never really say this. And maybe I should a little bit more, either in my public space or online, but mm-hmm. I'm a person of color. I'm an Asian man, mm-hmm. and I love the fact that I can watch an episode of science fiction, in this case, Star Trek, from 1998, and watch them tackle racism and sexism and bigotry head on. Not with the, uh, the amalgamation of using science fiction and aliens to, in that storytelling, but straight on. I thought it was mm-hmm. brilliant in this episode how in your face they got. I even do believe that uh, Jimmy used the word nigger in this episode. On TV yeah. in 1998. That's bold. Yeah. That is bold, bold, bold um, storytelling, that choice to do that, to, to actually probably defend that line against producers or against uh, you know the studio. So uh, side note about that, it, it has been censored in some re-airings of the episode but i i do want to make a case for it here because i i think they placed that word in exactly the right context mm-hmm. in this episode because he's talking about he, he's putting in the context hopefully everybody has watched the episode here but he's specifically talking about how others will look at them right so he he's putting the correct contextual uh, uh phrasing around that word as opposed to the other times in the episode where we're, we're simply using the, the less offensive Negro to say, like, okay, we're just using this as a descriptive for what this captain is like or what this person is like. Yeah. So I, I think they, they picked and they chose their words for the script here very carefully. And I hope that it doesn't get censored in future airings of this episode. Because if it needs to be in there, it, you know, it, it's in there for a reason. And uh, I think it is used correctly here. And I think that it's heartbreaking when he does use it because mm-hmm. a scene before, and it's probably one of my favorite scenes in this episode, when you really look at, at how subtle Sirach delivers this line as Jimmy, it is, it's heartbreaking because he's sitting next to Benny and Benny's like, hey, you know, you should get your life in order. And then Jimmy says, what, what, you like writing stories about a bunch of white people living on the moon? Who cares about that? And Benny's like, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm writing about us. And yeah. Jimmy says, what, colored people on the moon? Watch him. Watch him when he does that. Watch the inflection in his face. He's like, it's like equal parts disbelief and hope. He's like, he can't yeah. believe that that idea was actually uttered out loud. And I think that his, his character is tragic because he can't dare to hope. And when he said what he said, when he used that word, it's like, yep, this is what we're relegated to. The only time that people are going to be out in space or black people are, are going to be on the moon is to shine your shoes. Mm-hmm. That is what his society has reduced him to be, to believe, and Benny is struggling against all of that. That's just, it's beautiful to watch. Yeah. 
were far beyond this episode's original air date, but not far enough from its reality. Let's hear what John and Norman thought. Well, he have made it this far through Far Beyond the Stars, John. And it is time to take a look at the end of the episode. Does this episode hold up? And the morals and meanings and messages therein. And how did this episode sit for you? I, I feel like we've said most of what there is to say, at least as far as our notes going. And it, it, no matter what, it's going to feel woefully incomplete. But I feel like we've already shared how we feel about the episode, that it is so strong. And that this is an episode with a history lesson to share, which is it's a really tricky thing to do because it can be too heavy handed. It could also be too superficial where you feel like you're just ticking off the boxes. But this one does exactly what it should do, which is to let the characters do the work and let us feel something for them. You know, we get to get into the shoes and into the minds of these characters, not just the good guys that we're pulling for, but the the complexity of the characters around them. You know, if there's a question that I have about this episode, it goes back to what you mentioned in the previous segment. It's about the utility of working in the prophets slash the wormhole aliens. I, I think dramatically we get something out of that. I think it's a good use of Joseph Sisko. Um I get that the prophets are this sort of stand-in reason for any mysterious or spiritual phenomenon in DS9, but they seem to have pulled this one with some sort of purpose, especially because you have Joe Sisko there serving literally as their mouthpiece. I, I, I might come back to more of those thoughts in a moment, but that that's just the only part that I feel like, okay, there is some depth there. But do we really have to spend any time on it? Because everything else is so powerful already. Um, they'd really just serve as a vehicle to get us there. And, you know, I, I'll also I'll compare this to a lighthearted episode because I, I said it when we covered Who Mourns for Mourn, that I really appreciate a story that can say what it wants to say from a different angle relying on different characters and back to back we have it again yes we have our main cast but we don't have our main characters and i love it when you get to do this because this for once this is a mirror universe story that i can really get behind yes, yes. <laughs> you know it works so it's brilliant it is a brilliant piece of writing and it's one of those Star Trek at its best stories. Well, we still got to ask ourselves, is it still doing Star Trek? I mean, the story doesn't take place on a spaceship uh, out in the stars. It doesn't have aliens in it. It's just about people. But it's about people dealing with human issues, human concerns. It's a story that has a statement to make, many statements to make. And does it brilliantly, emotionally, and engagingly so. And there's a reason why this one always should and always does end up in the top episodes of all time. So here's a question I guess I can pose to you, and you don't have to answer it now, or you can answer it later. You, I want to pose this to the audience. Would this be considered the city on the edge of forever 
of Deep Space Nine? I'm so glad you said it because it's the same question I had in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, if this if this episode doesn't stand the test of time, then I'd like for somebody to tell me exactly which Deep Space Nine episode to put in its place mm. of uh, the episodes that I've seen and of those episodes that I consider the top 1% of all Deep Space Nine episodes because I don't know what would fill its shoes yeah. if this if I don't consider this an episode that would stand the test of time, not just for Deep Space Nine, but I think for all time in terms of science fiction. I'll be completely honest. Believe me when I say not only is this one of the best Star Trek episodes I have ever seen, it's one of the best science fiction shows I've ever seen. And right now, considering that I've only seen right up until this point, uh, midway into season six of Deep Space Nine, I'm actually going to say it's the best episode of Deep Space Nine I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And we've said this before, it doesn't use starships, starship battles, Mm -hmm. explosions, phasers, fights, batliths, any of the elements that usually accompany what many would consider necessary in the makings of an epic top tier and unforgettable episode. I get all those, and I think they're fine where they are, but this episode in particular is about Star Trek at its roost, and I will get back uh, to that point just in a minute. All right. Well, let, let's talk about those roots because, you know, if you and I are going to do is our morals, meanings, messages, again, people can chime in because there are many to be found here and many ways to peel this onion. I'll start out with a couple of thoughts and say, you know, what is it exactly that Cisco learns here? If the original intent was to have Jake learn something in that first story pitch, do we benefit or does Benjamin benefit from his experience? Or or is it just an exercise and what if as far as the characters internally are concerned? Yes, Benjamin starts out the episode with that, that feeling of unease with where he is and the tragedy around him with the, the Dominion War wearing on him. And then as we just discussed in the last segment, there there is this sort of obtuse message or obtuse experience presented by the prophets, do we actually need those things to be tied together? I I, I don't know that we necessarily do. Where we end up is Cisco questioning his own reality. Yes, I, I get it. He's decided to stay on DS9, but is that what the prophets were really doing by this whole experiment? Or do I just say, you know what? Doesn't matter. Let's just look at the rest of what we get out of this episode. So we've talked about the racism aspects. That is clearly front and center. But I want to take my wrap up to a different place. Because what interests me here is the meta of it all. We're watching a TV show fantasy where we get emotionally involved and affected by the characters in the story. Benjamin Sisko is watching a story that affects him and teaches him and gives him an emotional perspective on a life that he didn't necessarily live. It's about the story, and the story is real. The story is real for Benny. It's real for Benjamin Sisko. It's real for all intents and purposes of this discussion. This is how we relate to each other when we can't live someone else's experience. We tell stories about our lives, about our values, and about our hopes. 
You know, there's a movie that came out a few years ago that isn't necessarily the greatest movie, but there's a moment in it that really stood out for me. That movie is uh, Saving Mr. Banks. It had Tom Hanks as uh, Walt Disney, and um, it's the, the story of developing Mary Poppins for the screen. And there's this moment where Walt is imploring P.L. Travers to let him make this movie. And she thinks that he doesn't get the emotional heart of it, which is really about her father. And he says, and, and I'm, I'm just taking the tail end of this fantastic monologue, that's what we storytellers do. We restore order with imagination. We instill hope again and again and again. And that's what great storytelling is all about. Whatever, whatever the medium, whatever the, the setting, whoever those characters are, that's why we tell stories. That's why Gene Roddenberry wanted to tell stories that just happened to take place out in space, that just happened to be about these characters encountering aliens, because every encounter is about the encounter of the human condition. I like to think about this episode as Star Trek then pointing to itself. We need stories to serve as a guidepost sometimes. So in the past, Benny is writing something that is real because it can be real. And all we have to do is decide that we can work collectively to bring about that better world. That, 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 that's all that this speculative fiction is about. Just to present the idea to say, we actually can get there. We actually can make it better if the people around us have the courage to let it happen. The, those one or two advocates, you know, Benny needed an advocate in Pabst. Pabst needed an advocate. He needed the courage from Stone. And those weren't going to happen. Tragically, but somewhere else along the line, in another city, a few years later, somewhere else, something's going to happen where that story gets told to inspire the right people to then tell the next story. And that's how you change the world. And I'm going to celebrate a little cliche of this story, too, of this particular episode. It's the writers. It's the writers, the forward thinkers, the intellectuals who are on the right side of history here. They're the ones who can see beyond what is. And what it brought to my mind was the words of Robert Kennedy, who was then quoted by his brother, Edward Kennedy, at his funeral. when he said, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? And I love those lines, and they stick with me every single time that I hear them. And to me, that's the driving philosophy behind Benny Russell here. But it's also the driving philosophy behind anybody who's written for Star Trek, for anybody who's tried to make a statement or say something to the world with a piece of storytelling that affects people. What we have here is the most spiritually connected Deep Space Nine episode that can trace its roots to Gene Roddenberry's original vision of Star Trek as he used the medium of television and the genre of science fiction as the vehicles to tell his unique perspective of the social issues of his time. Racism, sexism, capitalism, abstractions of nationalism, and patriotism camouflaged in the trappings of science fiction. 
When Star Trek fans of today criticize the modern series of the genre for being too focused on social issues and, and cultural injustices of today, and even going so far as to saying that Star Trek was never about tackling socio-political narratives as they affect the modern day, then I strongly encourage them to reconsider watching this episode. Because if ever a Star Trek episode captured the social issues of today, it's this one. From sexism in publishing and in the workplace in general from the 1950s to today, from racist police brutality, as seen in this episode, to this very day that we are recording this podcast 60 years later from the type of events that Far Beyond the Stars is trying to bring to light. How can this episode not be anything other than what Star Trek is at the very heart and soul of its Roddenberry DNA? From episodes that tackled the absurdity of racism as seen in Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, to the intolerance of gender equality in The Next Generation's The Outcast, and gender fluidity in openly gay relationships in Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek has always and continuously challenged itself and its audience with the reality of today in contrast with a future of humanity that could be. And all it starts is with an idea. The idea that Benny had said in his grand soliloquy. You can pulp a story, but you cannot destroy an idea. Don't you understand? That's ancient knowledge. You cannot destroy an idea. That future, I created it, and it's real. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, One Little Ship. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, and Mike Schabel. Comedy episode, heavy episode, comedy episode, heavy episode. Anyone else getting whiplash? And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.